whether Brentwood or Franklin or Livestream, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're in the company of believers. As I mentioned, this is the most important audience on the planet. It is a privilege. It's an honor. It's humbling to stand here, to open the Bible, and to say this is what God says. It's an extraordinary opportunity to gather as his people, to sing songs, to say lyric, to pray to him. And it is incumbent upon us to grow in our appreciation of what it means to be part of a family of God, to be connected to the body of Christ, the most important audience on the planet. And we're glad to see you here today. We have been looking at a walk of wisdom, what it means, how we acquire wisdom, many facets of this manifold concept. We have looked at a number of different passages from Old to New Testament, and this concludes a mini three-part series that I have wanted to do from Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. If you have a Bible, I want you to open to Ephesians chapter 5 as we conclude this survey of the way Paul uses a little phrase, walk. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, he began in chapter 4. We represent a king. We no longer represent just self-interest or just our identity and what we do or our family or how many children we have. We represent the king. And five times he'll use that little phrase like a paragraph indention, like a marker, like a highlighter in the text, walk in a certain way. Today we'll look at the last three, technically two, what it means to walk in wisdom to walk in love as well as to walk in the light, and then he'll summar summarize and conclude those with walking in wisdom. If you have your Bible open, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. First of all, to walk in love. What does it mean to walk in love? First, he says to be imitators. This is the only place in the Bible it says to imitate God. Sometimes Paul says, be imitators of me. Sometimes we are to be like God, be holy for he is holy. But this is the only account it says to imitate God. Now, of course, we're not God-like, so what does he mean? Context covers a multitude of interpretational sins. And if you back up to chapter 4, verse 32, you'll see the context has to do with forgiving one another. And to love God the way he wants us to walk in love is to be forgiving of other people. What an expression that we imitate God by forgiving one another just as he forgave us. When you were little, maybe you remember, or if you have children, maybe you've witnessed it yourself, uh, Mimicking, that's the word, mimao, your parents. I remember standing on a stool in the bathroom with my dad. With He was shaving with a real razor, and I was shaving with shaving cream and a fake razor. Little girls who watch mom put makeup on at some point stand on a stool or a chair, and they want to put their makeup on and be like mom, and they want to dress like you and dress like me. That doesn't last long. But for a while, they want to imitate us. Soon after, they want nothing to do with us. We're to imitate God as beloved children. Like a child would imitate his dad or his mom at an early age, we're to imitate God by 
forgiving other people. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Paul's supreme argument, the highest level of all in doctrine and practice, the ultimate ideal is to imitate God by forgiving other people. This isn't a generic or subjective what would Jesus do aspect. This pertains directly to if we walk in love the way Paul describes it here, we forgive those who offended us. We forgive others who have sinned against us. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. I love the way Paul writes it. That he loved you and gave himself up for us. He identifies himself as one needing Christ's sacrifice. The greatest example the church has given, the greatest example the world has given, no greater sacrifice than this, no greater love than this, than you lay your life down for someone else. Human life laid down might save one or two people at best, maybe a few, but Christ's life laid down on our behalf instead of us in our place saves all who trust, who by faith believe in him. Christ is the only offering that's pleasing to God. Think of the hundreds of thousands of bulls and goats and birds and animals that were bled and sectioned and sacrificed and the ashes taken to an unclean place and the hide dealt with in certain ways by the Levitical priest through Israel and through history before the temple was destroyed. None of it accomplished anything. It was a shadow of what would come. And we commemorated that a few moments ago by a piece of bread and a little bit of juice, the broken body, the blood shed to pay for your sins and mine. No greater love. Paul uses the same language in Ephesians 5.25, just a few verses ahead. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've said it many times. It bears repeating. Uh, if husbands would get just this Peace of what it means to be a godly husband, we would go a long way in our marriages. Christ did not blame the church. He did not shake his fist at the church metaphorically. He didn't complain to God the Father, why do I have to die for these ingrates? He said, Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they're doing. He so loved his Father, he obeyed his Father to the point of death to die for the likes of you and me. And never get tired, never tire of hearing, if you were the only human on the planet, he would have died for you. That's how great is love. So now Paul tells us, I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Easier said than done. I'm not to blame her, criticize her, complain about her. I'm to sacrificially love her and to forgive her. We overstate and overemphasize and sometimes improperly teach submission. Submission is not a role. Submission is a response. But we overinflate the subject when the command paramount is love your wives as Christ of the church and gave himself up for her. I had a mentor for 30 years, Dr. Howard Hendricks, and he told us again and again and again, be a student of your wives, be a student of your wives. And I've been studying Cindy ever since. Just when I think I get her figured out, she changes. She used to like this, now she hates that. She used to want to do this, now she does. She used to like to go eat at these restaurants, now she can't stand those restaurants. It's a moving target. 
And I work so hard at studying her. And just when I think I've got her figured out, she changes. And I say, honey, you're driving me crazy. She says, well, at least you're not bored. <laughs> study. What, what great counsel. Study your wife all of your life. Be a student of your spouse because you will never figure her out. We're not supposed to criticize her. We're supposed to encourage her. We're not supposed to pick at her. We're to nourish and cherish her as we would our own bodies. If husbands would grab that by Christ's Spirit, we would go a long way. If you criticize your wife, she will not change. If you encourage her, she may change. And it all starts and stops with you, not with what she is or is not doing. John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again, Jesus speaking. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Christ says, I willingly, I love my Father so much, I willingly obey dying for you. To walk in love means that we are a forgiving people. To walk in love means that we are ready to forgive. We don't harbor grudges. We don't nurse a wound. We don't bring up old stuff. We choose to forget. Forgiveness is choosing not to bring it up again. It's always there. It will never go away. But you make the choice not to rehearse it, to regurgitate it, to recycle it again and again at the proper time. Don't miss the contrast. Look at Ephesians 4.19, a few verses back. The Gentiles, the unbelievers, have given themselves over to sensuality. It's a lateral move. They've given their lives over to sensuality, every kind of practice of impurity. But in Ephesians 5.2, Christ gave himself up for us. The world gives itself over to sin. Christ gives himself up for us. Verse 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. Immorality is the word porneia, pornography we bring into English. It's a broad word in Greek. It means any sexual activity outside the confines of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. Any sexual any sexual activity outside the boundaries and borders of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. Further, he likens them to impurity and greed. Impurity is the word refuse, and here he's attaching it to the idea of immorality. It is a morally corrupt relationship. And greed, of course, the insatiability. It seems funny he would add greed to the list, immorality, impurity, and greed, but they all fit together because immoral sins are insatiable sins. That's why we don't have one affair and stop. We don't look at pornography once and quit. We don't have an emotional affair with a person at work and stop because it's insa sin is insatiable. That's the greedy part of it. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Remember in Ephesus, the audience to which Paul's writing had the god Artemis or Diana, depending on your Greek 
mythology or the language of the Rome. Way Rome referred to it, Artemis and Diana, the same goddess. Uh, one of the ways you worship this goddess was through immoral activity. Think about the sanction of that today. Join this church and be as immoral as you want, and we'll call that worshiping God. That's where they had gotten to. That's the audience to whom he's speaking, and it sure seems to apply today. We've turned all of our vices and immoral things to personal rights, our identity, the way we're made, our choice. We've made personal rights little gods. We've made our identity into a lie and said we are we have a propensity or a proclivity or we're born with a predisposition. We've sanctified sin. Any sexual activity outside the boundary of a heterosexual monogamous marriage is immoral, impure, and wrong in God's standard. Do not let the world teach you theology. Do not change your mind because the world has lost its mind. When the world calls evil good and good evil, you know you're in good company if you're calling evil evil. It's hard today. Bob Deffenbaugh writes, If our society has taught us that immorality is making love, the Bible exposes this as a lie. Immorality is never the expression of love. It is an expression of lust. Immorality is not the work of the Spirit, but the fruit of the flesh. Immorality is not to be practiced by the saints. It is not to be tolerated by saints either. Love is defined in terms of sacrifice and to emulate that love which the Lord Jesus demonstrated in sacrificing for sinners at Calvary. Let us see from this text a clear grasp of what Christian love is about. It is not about self-gratification. It is about self-sacrifice to the glory of God. Why does this matter? Notice verse 5, he says, It shouldn't be even named among the saints. It's not even proper for you to talk about these things. A name is an identity. Our culture tries to change all the rules, and they do a very good job at it because they're blind. Oh, it's so hard for you to hear that and me to say it. Don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let the culture and pseudoscience tell you it's true when it's a lie. Don't trust the world over his word. This is the only thing that has authority. Not mock science, not faux science, not the latest research. His word. And you either trust your life and salvation to the Christ who gives you life and trust him at his word, or you parse it to the way you want it, and then you've made God in your image. It's hard to say, maybe hard to hear, but it's true. And it's very unpopular. To be named is to have an identity with something. When our children were little, I browbeat them continually. Easily don't lie. I'm trying to train little children to be truthful. And you did the same thing I did if you're a parent. When they were young and they lied, smoking gun, DNA, videotape, eyewitness evidence, and they lie and look you in the eye. And you say the same thing I said. You say, 
If you will tell me the truth now, the punishment, the discipline will be lighter. If you persist in the lie, it's going to get worse, right? We do the same manipulation, brainwashing attempts, right? We try to coax them to tell the truth. We train them as best we can, but one day they stand on their own two feet before God. I don't know when that day occurs, I just know it does occur. And I have browbeat in loving kindness. My children easily don't lie. Easily tell the truth. Your word is your bond. Your word means everything. Own your mistakes. Be courageous and say, I was wrong. Own it when you lie, and it will always go easier. Lie and lie and lie and cover up, and it will be harder. And no one will trust you. And you will have a horrible reputation as an easily. And I long for you to have a reputation that when an easily says something, he or she is a truthful person. It's priceless. Far more important, we're called by his name. You're not just representing fellowship. You represent your Savior. It's not even to be identified, not even to be named among you, Paul says. Notice he calls them saints. Depending on your background, like mine, saints were a little different. Saints in the Bible are all alive. They're called ones. They're out of the world. They're ecclesia, the church, and the word is hagios. They're a called one who's a saint. They're set apart by Christ, and so therefore we are saints. You can go home today and say, I'm, I'm St. Stephen, I'm St. Joseph, I'm St. Omar, I'm St. Sally, I'm St. Bubba. We have a Bubba here. St. Bubba. That's a good thing to be a saint. You're a called out one. It's not just the obvious sins. Look, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. These are not fitting. Again, we're so cool and edgy and happening with it because we can tell coarse stories and jest and be filthy in our language and somehow sanctify it. I have not watched it, nor do I ever intend to. I've read enough about it and, interestingly, have had many Christians tell me it's the best television show on Modern Family. All I know is what I've read and just what I've read will keep me from watching it. Call me a prude. I, I actualize my lust and sin by watching news and politics. <laughs> you might actualize yours by watching reality television and modern family. Why in the world do you let 20-year-old screenwriters who hate God tell you how to think about a family? Why would you let a 20-something-year-old screenwriter who hates you Christian, tell you how to define your life. Not even to be named among us. Now we're not to be puritanical, second and third separation people. We're in the world, not of the world. And that's the constant tension for walking the Christian life among a pagan world. I said as we began this three-part on Ephesians, this is changing your mindset. This is not a system of do's and don'ts. You will fail, and you will also lay those burdens on other people. They don't do what I do, therefore they're not growing Christians. That's insidious. We have to change our mindset. The moment you trusted Christ, 
His Spirit indwells you permanently. And His job is to transform us into what we're not. And it takes time and cooperation and pain and years. And the growth pattern is not like this, it's like this. And God willing, it's taking a trajectory or becoming a little more like Jesus. Does not our struggle begin with our thinking and then our speech long before our actions? No filthiness or silly talk or court. This is so this is so puritanical, Michael. This is so Victorian. This is so prudish. This is so old. I will stake my claim on his word. The antidote is very interesting, but rather giving thanks. Rather than all this list that he's just enumerated, giving thanks. And I first studied this, I'm scratching my head going, Paul, this is too easy. But see what he's accomplished. The self-gratifying, self-justifying, self-ingratiating, I can do what I want, my identity, I can have sex with anyone, anytime, any place, any number of people, because this is what I want to do, versus giving thanks. Giving thanks is an, ad, is an acknowledgement that I deserve nothing and I'm thanking someone else for everything. A person who has a thankful heart is a person who appreciates getting something they did not deserve. You were adopted, as was I, a freight train going to hell, brands from a fire, and we were chosen, throwaway people, chosen and adopted for no good reason of our accomplishments, but only His grace and love. And we've been given a new name. We should be the most thankful people on the planet. God's design for intimacy was between a man and a wife, heterosexual, monogamous. It's a beautiful holy, wonderful, mind-bending, spiritual communication. Everything else is a perversion from the liar. You won't hear that anywhere else, I dare say. Verse 5, for you know this with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. Look at that. Don't be deceived, men and women, by what? Empty words. That's our world, folks. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verses 3 to 6 teach that believers aren't to be deceived by the world's view of things. Have no part in what we're about. I said it a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand times. If I drop dead my last sermon preaching, the last phrase I want out of my mouth, don't let the world teach you theology. Do not let the world tell you how to view your God. So we walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You've been called by a king with which you've been called. Here Paul tells us to walk in love. Now he's going to tell us to walk in light. Look at verse 7. Therefore do not be partakers with them, that is the world, the sons of disobedience, for you were formerly darkness. Notice he doesn't say in darkness or in light. You were formerly darkness but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There's your identity. There's your name. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. 
trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Not only do we we not enjoin them, we expose them. We call them what they are. Look, for it is disgraceful even to speak of such things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, and everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Number one, walk in love. Number two, walk in light. Now notice, Bible students, notice verse 7 and verse 11. Verse 7, do not be partakers. Verse 11, do not participate. These are like paragraph indentions or highlighted or underlined in the outline, if you will, the way Paul's thinking. Don't be partakers and don't participate. Partakers really means to throw your lot in with someone. The word participate is extraordinarily interesting. Some of us grew up in churches that had koinonia groups. You heard the word koinonia. Fellowship groups, they were called. Uh, Some were called grace groups and so forth, agape groups, on and on and on. But the idea of koinonia was a fellowship, or literally it's a sharing or an alliance. So when the first church pooled their resources, they're kicked out of the synagogue, they're pooling their resources to help sharing all things in common, we read in Acts, that was a koinonia. You have a need, I have some supply. We help each other, that's koinonia. Here we have a negative in front of the word koinonia. Don't even be connected to them. Don't participate with them. Don't practice what they do. When I came to Christ, I've shared before, out of a a drug-using, licentious, junior high student lifestyle, and my coming to Christ was dramatic. It was significant. And when I came to Christ, I did not associate with those friends for very long, because peer influence isn't this, you know, lecherous thing that's browbeating you into doing stuff. They're just your friends. You're just hanging out with them. It's what you've always done. And all of a sudden you realize, I can't do what I used to do with that peer. And God in his great kindness uh, gave me some Christian friends. The first Christian guy I ever met was a backpacking, climbing mountaineer with his, his handle. Remember, remember CB? His handle was mountain goat. The guy climbed everything faster than anybody. Those wiry, ectomorphic guys that could do everything bitter, bigger, better, and stronger than me. And I outweighed him by double. Always irritated me. He was a better athlete in every way, shape, or form. And I went to college in a room with him and some other Christian guys, and, and they loved me. They put up with my nonsense. They corrected me when my mouth went off. And Danny would say, Michael, you need to talk that way. That's all I had to say. And we had fun. We played practical jokes on each other. We teased each other relentlessly. We weren't a bunch of Bible nerds reading our Bible four hours a day. We had a ton of fun together. But God took me from that licentious, immoral, drug culture and put me in a context of other guys that love God. And we read books together and studied the Bible together and Bible studies together, went camping and backpacking. And those guys, God used those guys to save me from a lifestyle that I had come out of. God turned the light on in my life. And I lived in shame and guilt for three years, of all that I had done before I knew Christ. It haunted me. 
I'm sure before, if I think about it too much, I can go to a dark place very quickly. But he saved me from it. We rented a bunch of apartments and farmhouses during my college years. One in particular was way down this unimproved road in Nacogdoches, Texas, deep east Texas. And um, it was a cool house. It was in a creek bottom surrounded by giant pine trees and hundred plus year old hardwoods in this creek bottom that had moved over the years far away from the property. There were no street lights. A good quarter mile plus was the nearest street light. And I leave early in the morning and come home late at night. And when I came home, it was pitch black out there. I mean, you drove on this unimproved road. You were out in the woods in East Texas. And I'd pull my car up and I'd shine the headlights onto the door and turn the headlights off so I could wait for my eyes to dilate because I had to walk to that door in in the dark. There were no. You didn't put outside lights on a house because it attract bugs this big from a half mile away. So you, in the country, you don't put lights on your house, and so you you navigate your way and walk in the house. And every night it was the same experience. I walked in through this little breezeway, unlocked the kitchen door, turned on the light, and cockroaches ran everywhere. This is East Texas, baby. That's life. They're carrying off canned goods. <laughs> small appliances, drinking the rat bait, they don't care, they're having a party, and you cannot get rid of them in an old farmhouse. It's just the way of life. And it was always a visual reminder of me. My sin was exposed. And when you walk in the light, you see it. Alexander White, I think, was the one, I'll have to paraphrase it, I cannot find the precise quote, who said, the goal is not to not sin. The goal is to walk as closely to Christ as you possibly can, because as you walk close to Him, His light reveals the sin in your life, and He's the only one that can help you deal with it. Walk close to Christ, the parallel for all of us, is evident. When we are not walking with Christ, we sin so easily. We make excuses for our behavior so quickly. We blow foam over all that we do and sanctify it. It's no big deal. Other people are doing worse things than me. But when you're walking close with Christ, in His Word, controlled by His Spirit, in community with His people, pretty hard to live in sin. Not impossible, but pretty hard. You can live a lie. But the goal is not to stop sinning. We'll all fail. The goal is to walk so closely to Christ that we see our sin. And we know He loves us and died for that. And He wants to help us be transformed into what we were to what we will become. Walking in light. Finally, Therefore, be careful how you walk, verse 15. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks. There it is again, giving thanks for all things 
in the name of the, our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Walk in love, walk in light. And then the summary, I think, of his five walks, walk wisely. Don't walk unwise like the world, walk wisely. One point I want to make, and then some observations. Chapter 518, in my estimation, is one of the most important verses on the role of the Holy Spirit, who we poorly understand of the Spirit's work in our lives. And I love the way Paul does in one verse so much. He says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. What's he saying? Don't take an external substance and drink to excess, and where now that controls you. Don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation. So we see a person who is mild-mannered and quiet and then become loud and boisterous and, and, and fighting-oriented when they're drunk. They're out of control when they're drunk. An external substance they've consumed to excess, and that now controls them. But rather be filled, and this is not, this is not quantitative filling. You already have the Spirit living in you. This is controlling. Let the Spirit who lives in you rather be controlled by Him. Don't take an external substance, wine, he's using it as an illustration, and let that control you. Use the internal person of God's Spirit to control you. Be controlled by Christ's Spirit. Mindset, men and women, mindset. We've got to change our mind. It's not merely do's and don'ts. Do's and don'ts might get us started. We need to get up. We need to spend time in the Word. We need to pray. We need to hang out with other believers walking in the same direction. We need iron sharpening iron. Those are good things. But it's a mindset, not a behavioral modification life. If it was a behavior mod life, all the type A's who were high-disciplined people would be the best Christians. doesn't work that way. Isn't it good it doesn't work that way? Well, I want to give you, I want to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to read about six statements. And one of these, maybe more, might jump off the page into your heart and mind. And that's the one I want you to think on and pray on this week as you're so what. Father, what would it look like if we walked in love? What would my life look like if I walked in love? What immorality, impurity, coarse language do I need to walk away from? How could I become a truly thankful person? Not a critic, not a whiner, not a complainer, not a blamer, but a thankful person. What friends do I need to leave behind? Not that I don't love them and pray for them, but I know I need to be away from them. What in your life is pleasing to the Lord? When we get to the place where pleasing God is more meaningful than pleasing self, we will wonder why it took us so long.
when you get to the place where God's Spirit is controlling you more than the world and self, you will begin to see true transformation. And it will express itself not in bitterness or regret, but in making melody in your heart, always giving thanks for what God has done. Father, help us to imitate you as people who forgive readily, who walk away from grudges and bitterness and harboring hatred. Help us to walk in light, to be so close to you that we see clearly our lives, not with a hammer over our heads, but a love that you have for us to change us into what we are not yet. Stir up enough thankfulness in our hearts and joy in our hearts that we get an appetite for that, not the world's perversions of those things. And help us to rest in you so we can smile at the day and smile at the future because you gave yourself for us. You loved supremely. And you call us by name your children. And we're co-heirs in a kingdom we cannot imagine. Help that shape our life and not the stuff of this earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a fabulous week.